Thank you for coming. John chapter 2. The third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they, they have no wine. Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. I want to teach you something today we're simply going to call seraphims. Seraphims. God bless you. You may be seated. I always have to be careful when I teach from these kinds of scriptures because the event is always so loaded with so many lessons. It's easy to get distracted. And as you rightly know, after being around me for a while, I expect you too often to listen to my wonderings and my chasing the rabbits. And, uh, but I could very easily give a lot of information and a great lesson on the power of the third day. There are so many, many places in the Bible that talk about day number three. And um, I could give you a wonderful lesson on Jesus starting his ministry at a wedding and go through massive amounts of scripture that talk about the bride and the groom and, and uh, marriage supper of the lamb, this great verses. I could give you a lesson on epitaphs, those last words that someone says, because right after this, it's the last recorded words in the Bible that we have that Mary ever spoke. She said, whatever he tells you to do, you need to do it. And uh, now I know she spoke in tongues, but uh, I don't have that recorded in the Bible. Uh, but uh, she was there on the day of Pentecost. And so we know she did some speaking then, but that's an unknown tongue. And uh, I've always loved the way this story ends. It said, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana. In other words, it's, it's just the beginning and uh, he took something powerless, water, turned it into something powerful. And, and that's just the beginning. And when we come to him, he takes our very common lives and turns it into something amazing. And that's just when you got the Holy Ghost, you know. And, uh, but today, I want to talk to you about this phrase, the hour. My hour is not yet come. It's obvious to me that Jesus was on the clock. And timing in the word is such a, a, a massive subject. So many things in this Bible are time sensitive and they had to happen at very specific junctures in time. It is my personal opinion that Jesus did not intend to begin his ministry at this wedding. I've always believed he intended to begin his ministry the same way he ended his ministry, by cleansing the temple. However, he, he did uh, um, submit to his mother and uh, gave them what they needed. And there's a great lesson there because there are times in the Bible when, when it wasn't supposed to happen, but he made it happen. 
A Greek woman one time said, would you please heal my child? There's no Gentile supposed to be in this thing, at least until Acts 8 and then really Acts 10. And Jesus literally reached 10 years into the future and took something out of a Gentile world and brought it back to her because she wasn't going to give up. It says in John chapter 2, this is right after he has turned the water into wine. He retired and he went to Capernaum. Nazareth was supposed to be where his headquarters was. He was called a Nazarene. If you go to Luke chapter 4, it says he went to Nazareth and as his custom was, there was delivered unto him the book of Isaiah. And that's where he read Isaiah 61 and said, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And he gives this amazing lesson and they were stunned because they said he, he doesn't teach like these priests do. He, he, he teaches with power and authority. And then some smart aleck said, wait a minute. Isn't that the kid that used to be in the carpenter shop? Isn't that Mary's boy? And it said they, they prayed for him to depart. And he did. And he went about 20 miles down the road. And he set up shop in Capernaum. There are 37 miracles recorded in the scripture that Jesus did. Of course, John said he did so many of them, not even the world could contain the books. But we have 37 of them recorded in the Bible that he performed. Of these 37, at least, at least 28 of them happened in Capernaum, either in that city or on the outskirts of that city. When Jesus went to the grave where the demoniac was, which is a wonderful thing because Matthew 8 talks about it. Mark 5 talks about it. Luke chapter 8 talks about it. Mark 5 and Luke 8 says there was one that met him out of the tombs. But in Matthew it said there were two that met him out of the tombs. But what interests me is what those demons said to Jesus. They said, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to torment us before your time? Even the devils knew he was supposed to set up shop in Nazareth. But he didn't. He went to Capernaum. And my prayer has always been, dear Jesus, please don't go 20 miles down the road. We want you to stay right here. And we want you to be enthroned here. There's a scripture that says, praise waits on thee in Zion. My idea was praise waits on you in First Church. Yes. We hear that you come by here every now and then. When you come by, would you please stop and stay here and be like that woman and her husband and we add on and make another room so that if he's going to stay anywhere, let's, we want him to stick around here. He went back to Capernaum. He turned the water into wine. He retired. He didn't do nothing. He just went back to Capernaum and he waited until Passover. Because I think that's when he wanted his ministry to begin. And it says right after this in John 2, 13, the Jews' Passover was at hand. He went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the, the money changers. 
When he made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. The sheep, the oxen, poured out the changer's money, overthrew the tables. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. He's in Capernaum. He goes to Jerusalem for Passover. And he puts on a display of passion, zeal, even anger. The Bible said, be angry and sin not. There are some things it's okay to be mad about. I did a lesson years ago and people thought it was so strange, but I taught on the Christian virtue virtue of hatred. And people thought that was so strange, but... uh, There are some things, the Bible said Job eschewed evil. He hated evil. We we should hate it when there's no prayer going on. When there's no praise going on. When nobody's getting baptized. When nobody's being delivered. When nobody's being healed. We ought to hate that. It said nothing. Perfect peace that have them that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. And there's two ways to look at that. Nothing shall offend you or nothing offends you. If nothing's going on, that ought to offend you. Jesus looked at men and he said, do you have any, have any fish? And they said, we have caught nothing. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm here. Now that I'm here, you cast your nets over there in the very same place that you failed again and again and it said they encompassed a great cloud of fish. You know, it's just, it's just the way you, you look at it. And this is, he's mad. And he's turning over these tables. I have a little more leeway in this second service, but Do you understand what a money changer was? Just somebody would bring a lamb to the temple and the priest had to inspect it. And this guy had, according to the Bible, he had been at his house for three days. I mean, he looked that thing over. He brings it to the the priest and the priest said, ah, your your lamb's got a flaw. It's like, no, it doesn't. He said, yeah, well, I'm I'm the pastor, see, and you can't, only, only, only preachers can see this. This is a, Invisible flaw. I, I, this is not an acceptable sacrifice. Well, I can't go home and get another one. Well, that's no problem. We got, uh, we got this lady, Sher, 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 Sherry Gorham. She, she, she sells lambs. Oh, you do? Yeah, go down to Sherry. She'll set, fix you up. So you take your lamb to Sherry and she gives you a lamb says that'll be $20 and so you reach into your, your wallet and you, you get 20 bucks out and Sherry goes oh no 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 that's Roman money you need temple money what you need temple money I don't have any temple money I just got Roman money well that's no problem you, you just go to her sister Carrie <laughs> Carrie's a money changer so you go over and you give her 20 bucks Roman and 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 Carrie says, no, no, you don't understand. It's $40 Roman to get $20 temple. Oh, and that's your, that's your eating money, you know, so you're not going to eat. So you got to give Carrie $40 Roman to get $20 temple. She looks at her sister and goes, 
Sherry takes the $20 temple money, gives you a sheep. She looks up at the preacher and goes, and all of a sudden you bring the sheep to the preacher, which is the very same land he rejected two hours ago from other poor dumb schmuck. That Jesus said it's a den of thieves. It, it, was, it, was just, it was just crooked what was going on there. He's turning over these tables. I mean, there's money everywhere. The 75 cent spotted doves are already out. The, the dollar white ones, solid white ones are fixing to fly. You got sheep running around. You got manure in the temple. You got hay. It's just, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> Preachers down on their knees picking up that money. Jesus with a whip. Wham! Woo! It was exciting, man. It's exciting. All of a sudden, some smart aleck young preacher says, Who in the world do you think you are? And he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Who are you? You turned my father's house into the starvation army. And he's mad. And he cleanses the temple. There's a great verse. It says, And they brought the lame and the sick and the halt. And he healed them all. Because you can't get healing in a dirty house. Had to clean up God's house in order for there to be anointing. This is not an isolated incident. I've read to you from John 2, which is at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. But this is Luke 19. This is at the end of his ministry. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. And said, my house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. It's right after this that he said, there will not be one stone left upon another. You want to know why he did this? This all comes from Leviticus 14. I keep doing this again and again. Maybe somebody will finally get the message. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You can't ignore that old covenant. And when you get to Leviticus chapter 14, if you bought a house that had been lived in by a leper or what many translations call a fungus, the priest wouldn't even go in the house until you took everything out of that house. You, every stick of furniture, you took it out of that house. And then he would go in and he'd look around and he said, scrub it down. And they'd scrub it. And then he'd come back the second time. And if it was still there, he'd say, tear the walls out. And you tore the plaster and the stones and you replaced the stone and new plaster. Then he'd come back the third time. If it was still there, he said, burn it down, destroy the house. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus went into the house and when he had to clean it out. Before God's showing up, you got to clean it out. So he emptied it out. They got a problem. They got a fungus there. Let's get rid of this. I've read to you John 2. That was the first time he visited the house. Luke 19 is the second time he visited the house. The problem comes back. He said, we need to really scrub it up. And scrub it up he did. But the problem is it came back again. So the only thing you can do is tear the house down. History says that when Herod remodeled the temple... He put veneer of gold on the outside of it so that when the sun hit in the morning, I, I was in Rangoon in Burma, it was what it was called. Today it's called Myanmar, but, but in Rangoon is the largest pagoda in the world, gold pagoda in the world. Poverty, just massive poverty. 
But those people sacrificed and literally covered their church with gold. I don't know how that high that thing is. But when I would get up in the morning and the sun had hit that gold pagoda, it was, it was stunning. So I, I, that's my mental model of the temple during the time of the ministry of Jesus. But in 70 AD, the Romans came. They don't know how it happened, but uh, it caught on fire. That gold is malleable. It melts at a very low temperature. That gold ran down the sides of that church house and congealed like wax from a candle in the cracks of the stones. And those Roman soldiers literally pried the stones apart to get the sticks of gold that it congealed in the cracks and the prophecy of Jesus came true. There won't be one stone on top of another. We're going to tear this place up because you got a fungus in here. That's why the veil was rent from the top to the bottom, not to let God, not to let us in, but to let God out. There wasn't any of these in the book of Acts. I'm grateful for a place to meet. But let me tell you what, the church was her most dangerous when she was on the street. We're not careful. These churches are going to be just boxes where we keep the promise and we keep the revelation and contain it. God, please not let this do this. He cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry and he cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry. These verses are so powerful when you begin to study this stuff. And and it's just... You've got to have a clean house. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? But he had clean hands and a pure heart. There are so many times in the Bible when Jesus healed somebody and he said, I don't want you to tell anybody. Matthew chapter 8 is the first incident. There was this leper that came to him. Now, what is it, Simon? Simon was a, a Syrian general. That's Back in the Old Testament. This is the first Israelite that's ever been healed. It's a fascinating verse in Matthew 8 and 4. He said, See thou tell no man, but go thy way. Show thyself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded. This is fascinating because this doesn't make any sense unless you read Leviticus 14, 15, and 16. Here's a guy that's had leprosy. He's condemned. He can't go to church. Jesus heals him. He goes back to church. Preacher is bent out of shape. Going to rock him to sleep. Big rocks. <laughs> All of a sudden he realizes he's healed. And he said, how in the world did you ever get healed? Jesus. You mean that phony? Call him whatever you want. But he, left, he told me to tell you something. What's that? Now that I'm healed, you're supposed to offer the gift that Moses commanded. Well, what in the world's that? You go back in my office, off to the side, I got the main office outside, I got my study room. That's where my books are. I can picture it right now, I know where it is. You're looking at my first wall of books, you go to the left, all the way in the bottom, there's a box down there with little brown books in there. Those are my Bible study, my Bible school books from my Bible school classes. They have never been opened since 1977. That's my mental model here. He tells this priest, you're supposed to offer the gift that Moses commanded. You've got to realize no priest 
has ever offered that gift, ever. And there was no need to. No Jew had ever been healed. And he's going back to his Bible school notes. Hmm, I got to have a pot, two birds. I got to have some hyssop. I got to have a scarlet cord. Get your pal to hold the pot over running water. Kill one bird, catch the blood of the dead bird in the pot, take the hyssop, drag it through the blood, take the scarlet cord, try to tie the blood-soaked hyssop onto the leg of the living bird and let it go. Pretty complicated. I wish I could tell you the typology, but it's a great picture of Calvary. Got to be two birds. He had to be close kinsmen. He had to be like us. Look just like us, but he had to die. It was his blood. On and on and on. Scarlet cord, not red, scarlet. It's fascinating. Heals this leper. Don't tell anybody. No problem, boss. Next chapter. Two blind men come to him. And in verse 27, they say something powerful. Jesus, thou son of David. It's only three times in the Bible that phrase is used. When you look at the first chapter of Matthew, in Matthew 1 and 1, it says, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. When you call Jesus David's son, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit unto him right hand. When you call Jesus the son of David, that's the equivalent of saying, you're Messiah. This is what the guy said when he came out of Jericho. Bar Timaeus, Jesus, thou son of David. So in other words, they don't just know his name, they know who he is. It's one thing to say Jesus, it's another thing to know not just what his name is, but who he is. And, 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 and these two blind men said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And he said, do you think I can do this? And they said, yeah, we really do. He said, well, you're right, I can, be healed. And then he says, see that no man know it. Now we're in Matthew 12. The Pharisees went out and held a counsel against him. But Jesus knew it. He withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And charged them that they should not make him known. Now you get to Mark 3. And it says that the crowd was so great he literally got in a ship and had his men rowing back a little bit so he could talk. He's got no microphone like I do. He's got to get a little bit away from the crowd. Listen, listen to this amazing verse. It says, and, I, and for he had, healed, he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him to touch him, as many as had plagues and unclean spirits. And they fell down and cried. So, so they, and, and he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Look at the progression. First of all, you got one man. Then you got two men. Then you got a crowd. Now you got a multitude. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus keeps saying the same thing. Don't tell anybody what I did to you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Place it said, and they, they published it unwisely. Compare these verses with this verse. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. 
And when he had spoken these things, he was taken out of their sight. This is the epitaph of Jesus. This is the last thing he said before he left. That was the word of the Lord. Here's the word of the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God and the salvation. Unto everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here is the word according to the Apostle Peter. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I can go on and on and on. The question is obvious. Why did Jesus make such an effort during his ministry to stop and stifle others from being a witness And after his resurrection, he and the apostles openly encouraged people to be a witness. And the answer is obvious. He knew that a witness would bring a crowd. Because during his ministry, he was doing his best to fly under the radar. He gave a parable, they're called. Got this mixed crowd, got hungry people, got the Pharisees there, Sadducees there, priests are there trying to catch him in his words. He said, you know, a guy went out to sow, threw some seed, birds picked some of it up, flew away with it. Some of the seed fell on a stony ground and it, it, didn't, it, did, it didn't get good roots. Others fell on some decent ground, but the, 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 the weeds grew up and choked it. He said others fell on really good ground, got deep root, and there was a great harvest. Church is over. Good night. And they're scratching their heads. And all of a sudden the Pharisees are gone and the priests are gone. And his disciples said, hey, boss, what's with the seed and the bird and the stuff? One of the greatest messages I ever heard in my life was taught by an old gentleman named George Glass. It was called Satan Among the Saints. Because when Jesus gave his parable, he talked about the bird that came down and scooped up the seed. But when he gave his explanation of the parable, he said that whenever the seed, which is the word of God, is sown, he said, then cometh Satan. To take the seed. See, there's, don't ever doubt this, folks. Satan comes to church. When you think of this city, trust me, everything at the bars is going according to plan. There are houses, I'm telling you, they're right around us right now, where they're growing pot. They're stealing the neighbor's electricity and they're growing pot. There are, there's a house that I know of right now where I get my truck clean. It's a meth house. It stinks. Everybody knows it's a meth house. Everything's going according to plan. If you were Satan, where was the one place you would make sure you went? Every time it was going on there. I'm telling you, Satan makes sure he goes to church. Because it's the one place that has the potential to mess up his plans. And he's going to do everything he can to steal the word before it finds a trysting place in your spirit. Because Isaiah said, grow root downward and you'll have fruit upward. But you got to get them roots. 
Isn't it amazing how things are funnier in church than they would be anywhere else? Isn't it amazing how easy it is to get distracted somewhere else? A phone will go off. A baby will cry. Just something at that very critical moment between conviction and making a choice. And all of a sudden something stupid happens. And all of a sudden, bam, the moment's lost. Don't you ever doubt that Satan is a master of that moment. It does everything he can. That's why people, if you're fine, great. But I promise you, two pews behind you is somebody that's not so great. And church just can't be about you. You've got to beware of the others and the dynamic that goes on in a service. You've got to be aware of that. Because in Pentecost, there are thermometers and there's thermostats. Thermometers just tell you whether it's hot or cold. There are people like that. If you're having a great service, they're boogieing. If it's not doing so good, they're looking around. Then you got the thermostats. These are the feelers. They say, you know what? I think it's a little colder than here than it's supposed to be. And they kick in. That's what you have to be. Spiritually perceptive enough to realize when I'm laboring in the word that you kick in. The Bible said how good and how pleasant it is. For brethren to dwell together in unity, it's like oil, holy anointing oil that ran on the beard, even Aaron's beard, and down to the garments and then to the skirts. It says, as there is dew on Mount Hermon every morning, there I have commanded a blessing forevermore. What is it saying? It's saying that if you want your priest to be anointed, you have to be unified. I can pray and I can study and I can do everything I can. But if I'm not preaching to a unified house, there ain't going to be any oil on me. It's good for brethren to dwell together in unity because that's where the oil comes on the priest. And it doesn't just stay on the priest. It ought to go in the garments of the men and the skirts of the women. Sometimes people get lousy preachers. Sometimes preachers get lousy churches. But in order to build a church, you have to have a yea and an amen. You have to have a yes coming out of a pulpit, and you've got to have an amen coming back from the pew. Too many people have got a preacher that's saying yes, and the people go, I don't think so. Some preachers don't have a vision, but the people are ready to go. The amen's there, but there's no yes coming out of the pulpit. But when you get a yea and an amen together, oh, that's powerful. That is really, really powerful when that goes on. You see, again and again, he, he's, he's, he's trying to, why? Because he's got to be there. He's got to die on Passover. He's got to be in the grave during unleavened bread. He's got to resurrect on first fruits. That Holy Ghost has to be poured out on the day of Pentecost. Prophecy is pregnant. There are these things that have to happen at very specific junctures in time. My lesson is simple. Do you understand the importance of the hour? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. What's that mean? It means we serve a speaking God. And a speaking God must have a speaking people. I did an entire series of lessons years ago on Ephesians. It's my personal opinion that the book of direction for the Old Testament is the book of Joshua. The book of direction for the New Testament is the book of Ephesians. 
Every other epistle in the New Testament, somewhere in that letter, there's a rebuke. Somewhere in there, they're doing something wrong, but not, not the church in Ephesus. Six chapters of high revelatory insight that's light years ahead of every other New Testament apostolic church. It was an amazing place, but that's the beginning. Years later, John said, I know thy works, writing to the church in Ephesus, thy labor, thy patience, thou can't bear them which are evil and has tried them that say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. You have borne, which is literally not just carried, but given birth and has patience. And for my namesake, you have labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I mean, listen to these, listen to this. You're, you're hard workers. You, you, you got a great work ethic. You, you have patience with new converts. You, you won't tolerate false teachers. You've never fainted. You've born. You, you, you've given, you've given birth. But I've got a problem. You left your first love. I remember the night I got the Holy Ghost. I remember them praying in shifts with me, man. I remember, first of all, it was my mom and dad. Then my grandma spelled them when they got tired. When she got tired, my pastor and his wife came there. By the time they were done, Harry and Esther were ready for second shift. It was 11 o'clock at night. But I remember, I remember just faintly being able to hear their voice. But I was somewhere else, man. And I remember just this thing gushing out of me. And in one ear, I can hear myself saying stuff I don't understand. But in the other ear, I can hear my dad saying, that's it right there. Don't you dare stop. Keep doing that. Go, 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 go. And so I did again and again and again and again. And I remember not sleeping that night and going to school without any sleep and coming home. And the first thing I did when I got home from school is I got my dad's Bible. My dad had three by five cards and I knew where he kept the, the ones that weren't written on any what was called dad's drawer where he had a cup of change and the belt that he whipped me when I needed to get straightened out. But I also know that in that drawer by his checkbook were these three by five cards and I went and I swiped some of them three by and I, I spent the day, I went through his Bible and I copied everything that he had on three by five cards. I went through every page of the Bible and he would have stuff like July 8th, 1968, Brother Caton preached this message. I had no idea who Brother Caton was, but I'd write that on the edge of my Bible. On that date, Brother Caton did this and preached that. I went through the whole Bible. Every place my dad had something written down, I wrote it down. Everything he had underlined, I had underlined. When my grandma dropped her Bible, it was like a bomb went off, man. It took 10 minutes to pick up grandma's Bible. She had, she had flowers from funerals that she had squashed in her Bible. She had things cut out of the paper, hints from Heloise that she had cut out of the paper. She had, she did, it was just, and I, so I swiped stuff, flowers from funerals from my grandma's Bible because the real people that I respected had fat Bibles and they had stuff in there. And when you dropped your Bible, we just splashed everywhere like, like shrapnel out of a grenade. I remember that. I remember what, that, 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 that river that was inside of me. I got to tell some I got to tell somebody, I got to tell somebody 
that is your first love. That, that desire to say, my God, at mercy, I cannot afford to stay silent. I gotta say something. Oh, Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, you didn't lose it, you left it, which means you can go back. But he said, if you don't repent and go back to your first love, he said, I'm gonna remove your candlestick. You know what that means? That means that Jesus Christ would rather have a city in darkness than to have an apostolic church in that city that won't shine, that won't be a witness, that won't talk. The Lord would rather this city go to hell than to have this church in the middle of this city and us not be a witness and us not shining and telling and talking to people about what I think of the goodness of Jesus. I know he's done for me. My soul cries out. Hallelujah. Have you forgotten what that feels like? Oh, Jesus. I, I, my mom and I, we, we've had hundreds, hundreds of texts and calls and cards and letters. And it's really been amazing, the outpouring of love and kindness to our family while, when, when daddy got promoted. But what has amazed us is the great number of people, not people from here, but usually from out of town said, I feel so sorry for you. I know you're so sad right now. And mom and I look at one another and say, they, they don't get it, do they? We're not sad. Yes, it says you sorrow not as others who have no hope. There is sorrow, but it's not hopeless sorrow, see? I just, I, you have, well, you lost them. You don't lose nobody if you know where they are. They have a saying in Australia, you can't take anything with you. All you can do is live a good story. My dad left us with a great story. Yeah, yeah, there are times that, that you get a little weepy when you think he, he's not going to be there. I, I, I went July, Fourth of July, I always pick raspberries. And then he was always my berry picking partner. And I'll never, I'll never pick raspberries with my dad again. And I'll never go hunting with my dad again. And I'll never drive nails and cut boards with my dad again. There's a little bit of melancholy that comes over me when I think of things like that. But when I realize the way that my dad lived and the witness that he left behind. These people don't get it, man. We are not, don't, don't feel sorry for us, man. We have been blessed with this amazing legacy and this wonderful witness. And it's just, it, it, because there, there was a time when he said, I don't want you to tell anybody, but that was then. That's not now. Because it's still, Revealing it to me as I ponder and pray and study about something I did a couple weeks with you. I, I, I feel the Lord allowed me to teach you a very powerful truth because in Philippians chapter two and verse nine, it says he's highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. But then in Ephesians chapter one and 21, it says he's far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name this name, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. So based on Philippians chapter two and verse nine, there is a level known as above. But based on Ephesians one and 21, there's another level that's far above, far above. I am convinced 
This is what Isaiah was referring to when he said, in the year that King Isaiah died, <laughs> I saw also the Lord. That's a great, that you realize, this is a prophet. He knows that Israel is about to go into a national and spiritual decline that even to this day, they've never pulled out of. He knew the people and the country that he loved, just the way I feel right now. This country that I love is going down the toilet. Ray, am, am I the only guy that feels this way? I don't think so. I just, I heard some girls complaining on YouTube two days ago about how horrible America is and on and on how racist America is and how horrible they are. And the guy said, well, you could move to Afghanistan if you wanted to. I love this country, but I see stuff going on and it's bothering me. But I, I, I've always tried to be positive. I've always tried to be a half full kind of guy. But the truth is, I can't promise you according to prophecy that things are gonna get better. If you're in a church, they will. Because the Bible said of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So if you're in the church, things are gonna get better. But if you are not in the church, you are crazy if you think so, things are getting better. They're going down. Boy, if there ever was a time to be in the church, it ought to be right now. I, 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 when I was a kid, tattoos, the only guys that had tattoos were drunk sailors and merchant marine guys. And they had that thing, they called it an eagle, looked like an old chicken to me, it was all blue and mottled. I had friends in school that would take ink out of pen and, and, a, and a needle and make their own tattoos, you know. Tattoos were crazy, but not now. Tattoos are mainstream. Now, it's a, I saw a girl yesterday with her name, her name on her arm. And I said, was it? That's my name. And it's like, really? You need that to remember your name? I saw a girl two weeks ago with a giant bulldog on her thigh. I mean, a massive bulldog. And I said, what is that? That's my dog that died. You're going to put your bulldog on your... For the, oh. But then I think about the mark of the beast and it seems so distant and it seems so improbable. But now this tattoo thing has become mainstream. You're seeing the first forerunners of it now because very soon you're not gonna be able to fly unless you have this vaccine. It's the trial run. I'm not saying the vaccine is the mark of the beast, but I'm telling you we're getting to the point where you can't fly if you don't have that. I'll tell you what's coming. You can't buy, you can't sell unless you have that. It's going on right now. Please understand, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the first plague this planet has ever gone through, nor will it be at last, because you get in prophecy and there's a plague coming that's gonna kill 25% of this world. You think COVID's bad. It's nothing compared to this. Here's my problem. People that have gotten out of the rhythm of coming to church, but the last I checked, they are still in the rhythm of going to the grocery store. They are still going to their children's events, but I don't wanna go to the house of God because I might get COVID there. You got to understand something, ladies and gentlemen. There's an enemy out there that'll do everything he can to keep you out of the house of God, to keep you away from your brothers and sisters. You got to, you perfect love cast out fear. Fear has torment. We're living in a world of fear. I just met a man two weeks ago. He said, my parents have not come out of the house since February of last year. I get their groceries. I do this. I do that. Them come out of the house. You might get hit by a car leaving church today. 
Listen to me, you are indestructible until God's done with you. When God's done with you, you're gone. I don't care if it's the flu, the mumps, getting hit with a car or COVID, it's over, all right? Can you accept that? Then let's just go on and say, I don't believe God's done with me yet. And I'm gonna continue to minister and I'm gonna continue to be involved in the kingdom. My daddy, my daddy just died. But guess what? I see the Lord. Isaiah, when the king Uzziah died, he could have gone into depression. But he said, let me tell you something I saw besides the death of the king. I saw the Lord. When something lousy happens in your life, don't just dwell on that. Don't just dwell on the lousy. Dwell on the Lord. See the Lord. And see him the way Isaiah saw him. Hi and lifted. High and lifted. Because in Isaiah 6 and 2, there's only, it's only one place in the Bible, just one. And I know no scriptures of private interpretation, but in Isaiah 62, it says, and above the throne stood the seraphims with these wings and these faces and they're crying one to another, holy, holy, holy. There are very few places in the Bible where something is repeated twice. Jesus did it in John chapter three. Marvel not that I say unto you again. There was times that he said, Abraham, Abraham. One time he said, Jacob, Jacob. One time to that little boy, Samuel, Samuel. But there's only one time in the Bible where something is repeated three times in a row. And that's in Isaiah chapter six. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only place in the Bible where something gets mentioned once, twice, three times. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a hierarchy in the angelic world. There are angels, they call them archangels. That's not the way it's written, it's arch. There's angels, there's archangels. But there is the highest form of being in the angelic world known as a seraphim. The word seraph is a Hebrew word which means I'm on fire all the time. And it's very clear that these seraphims are above, they are above the throne. They are the highest order of angels. I don't understand. I know Ezekiel saw them. I know that, uh, that Isaiah saw them and I know John saw them in the book of, and he describes these, this, this thing with four different faces and, and all these wings. But, 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 but when you read Ezekiel chapter one, this is what amazes me. In Ezekiel chapter one, he said, I looked under the wings and under the wings were the hands of a man. <laughs> I'm, I'm, what I'm trying... There's these faces, and it said they, 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 they went where they went, which meant they weren't distracted. When they made up in their mind where they were going, they weren't going to get sidetracked. I am convinced that around his throne, right, the Bible said, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I think, I think Isaiah saw it, Ezekiel saw it, John saw it. Around his throne, he wasn't just above. He was lifted. And the reason he was lifted is because there were these beings known as seraphims that are saying, holy, 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 holy. I believe that Jesus is above all by himself. But there is another place, another level, another strata. David one time talked about symbols, but then he talked about high 
sounding symbols. In, in, in Psalms 149, there are, there are verses about praises, but then in 149 and 6, he said, let the high, high praises of God be in their mouth. Listen to the verses that follow. To execute vengeance upon the heathen, to bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment. Watch this honor. This honor have all of the saints. Ladies and gentlemen, there's symbols, there's high sounding symbols, there's praises and there's high praises. It's one thing for Jesus to be above. He's above all by himself, but there is a place where he's far above. And the only difference between that is somebody has to lift him. Somebody has to exalt him. Somebody has to magnify him. I believe that just like there's seraphims around his throne there, there need to be seraphims here. There need to be people with the understanding. This is what Jesus said in John 12. When I, even I, am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, which tells me it's not enough for his name to be above. Nobody's coming to the altar just because the name of Jesus is above. Nobody's going in that water. Nobody's being filled with the spirit. There's got to be another level that is reached by people with the revelatory understanding that I have got to lift, lift him up. Because when he gets lifted... That's when men are drawn. There is no drawing power in a silent church. There is no drawing power in a praiseless or a prayerless church. But I'm telling you, when you pray and when you praise, there is a divine power and attraction that can pull people off the roads and into the building. That can take people out of the benches and around the altar. Get them out of the altar and into the water. Why? Because you have the understanding The Bible said, strengthen those feeble knees, which means stand up. And then it says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. And then the Bible said, you need to lift up your eyes. And then it says, you need to lift up your voice. And then it says, you need to lift up your hands. I think if we'll stand up, lift up our head, lift up our eyes, lift up our voice, lift up our hands, the King of glory will come in. That you can bind their nobles with fetters. This this honor has all the saints. Why? Because we're not going to be silent anymore. That was before the resurrection. Now after the resurrection, the, 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 the scripture is very clear. Tell, talk, witness, do something for goodness sakes. Talk, 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 talk about me. Talk about me. I don't have a fake book page. If you got one, that's your business. But I'm telling you right now, if all you do is use Facebook to gossip and to tell all kinds of stupid stories and carry stuff on, you are wasting a powerful weapon. I'm not against a cell phone, but I'm telling you, it's a powerful weapon. You need to use your social media as a platform to witness. You need to use your cell phone as a weapon to be witness. Come on, folks. We've got these weapons in our hands right now. This honor. Have a... I'm, getting, I'm getting grass at my house. I was supposed to get grass last year, but I gave my money to a missionary. And I don't regret that. And God gave me some more. So I'm getting some grass. And my wife and I are meeting with this guy this week. And, 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 and so he's 
doing the grass and the sprinklers and all that stuff that you do, you know. And builders don't tell you about you. If you bought a house and it already has grass, you better be grateful for the grass. Because if you build a house, you don't get no grass. You don't get no sprinklers, you don't get no bushes, you don't get no trees, nothing. My house, not one tree, not a tree, man. It just looks like the moon. And so I, I, I got a little wood shop in the basement I've been putting together. And I ordered a vacuum system from wood dust because besides cigarette smoke, wood dust is the second cause of cancer. And so I don't want to get cancer from wood dust. So I bought this vacuum and I'm unboxing it. And all of a sudden this guy, is, he's there. He said, well, I'll help you. Wait a minute, wait, I'll help you. And all of a sudden he's pulling this stuff apart. And he said, well, what is that? I said, it's a vacuum, a vacuum. I said, yeah, come here, get that. We'll walk in there. And all of a sudden he goes into my wood shop and his eyes get like a deer in the headlights. <gasps> he said, Harold, I had no idea because I got a workbench and planes and chisels and a miter saw and a table saw and a sander. And now I got a vacuum system to suck all the, most of the dust off that stuff. He said, you ever heard of, heard of Bob Jones University here? It's a Bible school in South Carolina. I said, Oh, yeah, I know all about Bob Jones University. He said, that's where I went to college. I said, you didn't go for horticulture? He said, no, I felt a touch of God on my life when I was a young man. I went to Bible school. He said, I, I took a carpentry discipline. He said, built churches all over the world for missionaries. We're talking about grass. That guy leaves, and I look at Renee and go, she said, we should have said something to that guy here. And I will this week. Because I realize, I think the puppet master of the universe just dropped a buy in my lap that I thought was going to give me grass. I think God ordered his steps for us to be together. So that I can be a witness. You know what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 8? It says, creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sun. It's, it's not talking about people, it's talking about the planet. This planet is sick. The planet is groaning, saying, where's the church? Where's the church? The Black Lives Matter are not, they're not embarrassed. All right? All the grays and the perverts and the homos, they're not embarrassed. Amen. And why is the church... There's a scripture in the book of Malachi. It said, I want the bride to come out of her closet. All right? Now, I'm not supposed to talk about this on live stream, but I'm not going to be stifled anymore. I want to, well, why? All these twisted lifestyles are so proud of what they do. And we're supposed to hide in a closet and say, nobody wants what. I refuse to be marooned on my little self-righteous Pentecostal island and think nobody wants what I have. I'm convinced that right now is the perfect moment for the church to come out and to declare who you really are. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come with me around this altar. Don't come quiet. Come doing what you're doing. Come worshiping. Come on, come worshiping. It's time to make a covenant. It's time to make a pledge. I will not be silent. I will not be quiet. I have a mandate from no less than Jesus himself to be a witness. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a seraphim. I'm gonna be one of those beings that lift him 
into another realm where people can be drawn. The Bible said that God turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. You read the Bible, friends, my, they, they, they despitefully used him for chapter after chapter. But Job, whose body is ravished, whose kids are dead, whose wife doesn't want anything to do with him, he's lost just about everything, and he's praying for somebody else. And the Bible said that when Job prayed for his friends, God turned his captivity, which means that when he prayed for somebody else, God healed Job. Hey, listen to me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men. Not just the people that know. Even the people that are lifting get lifted. You understand that? Come to prayer meeting. Be a witness. Teach a Bible study. There's an enemy out there that said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But I have never regretted praying a prayer. I've never regretted teaching a Bible study. I've never regretted being a witness. I've never regretted it, not one time. And I'm asking you right now to join with me and these people, let everybody sing. And let's magnify the Lord today and say, I have the revelation. I'm gonna lift him. I'm gonna lift him. I'm gonna lift him.